Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Um, for me, I, I, you'll, you'll learn more about me as we go. And um, again, thank you so much for your graciousness and kindness. Um, I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. Um, in a in a Methodist home, my family was kind of in and out of church, and there were seasons where we really, um, my parents got touched in the Brownsville revival, and they were hot for the Lord for a while, and then you know we kind of did this spiritually, and um, I led worship for a Methodist church from like fourteen to eighteen. I'm not even sure that I was saved during that time period, but I think God was yanking me already. Um, but for the majority of my teen years, I struggled. And sorry, this is kind of like, feels like a negative talk for a second, but um, it's going somewhere. For the majority of my teen years, I struggled with depression in a strong way, um, suicidal tendencies in a strong way. My biological father um, is an alcoholic. Um, I've shared with you that he's struggling with cancer now. We're down to two tumors from four. So we, we're praying. He's down to two tumors. And he is starting to like talk about Jesus a little bit. And so I'm believing for not only his healing, but more so for him to come to Jesus fully. Um, but I didn't meet my biological father until I was about 19. Uh, he left when I was two. My sister was nine. My brother was seven. Um, so I grew up with kind of an orphan. We would call it an orphan spirit, um, feeling abandoned. Uh, my stepfather was a hard worker, like a hard worker. And um, he he taught me well. I can remember him saying, get up out of bed, we're going to go, you're going to change the oil today, or you're going to do these things. I mean, I, at, growing up, I couldn't understand that he was, he was trying to love me well and teach me well. And now, knowing how to change my oil, I'm thanking God. But in the moment, I, I received it as, as he was a mean man. Um, and that's a problem with the orphan spirit, is that you can never receive any kind of love or correction. Everything feels like abandonment. Um, and so I, I just grew up with a lot of depression, anxiety. I was medicated at a young age for depression and anxiety. Um, and at 19 years old, I was playing music primarily, traveling, playing music. Um, and I was living alone in a home, um, in a big house. I w- was on medication at the time, but I was really struggling with like with the thoughts of suicide and I, sorry, this is too much information, but I, f- I feel led to share this. Um, I would lay in bed at night with a shotgun in my mouth um, because I did. I had a, sh- I had a shotgun for protection, but I, I started to at night put that thing in my mouth, and I was on the edge of saying I can't do it, like I just don't want to live. And so one night I'd heard the gospel my whole life. So one night I had that shotgun in my mouth, and I was seriously contemplating whether or not I was going to take my life. And um, I said this to God. I said, I believe in you, in in a sense. And I said, "Um, if you're real, I'll give you a couple months, and I'll really try this thing. I'll go to church. I will do my absolute best to get free from sexual sin, to get free from any kind of temptation. I'll try to clean my language. You know how you do. I'll try to clean myself up. I'll do everything I can to walk with you for a couple months. And if you're real, show yourself to me. And if not, I'll end my life. That was my paradigm. Um, and then in a matter of a couple months, my heart was burning for the Lord, like just hot for Jesus. Because he just loves that kind of moment, you know. He he, he ate me up. And so um, I ended up at the school of ministry that I work for now. I ended up there. I have no idea. I didn't know a thing about the school. Just knew a guy who went and said, I'll go because it was the only school I could afford at the time where I thought I could afford. I couldn't afford it. Um, and so I went and the Lord just radically changed my life. Um, I um, had a season in the first year there where um, the Lord manifested himself to me in a, in a, in a peculiar way. Um, and this may seem offensive, so don't hear it as offensive. Um, but for, for 10 days um, straight, I would wake up in the middle of the night praying in the spirit. I'd wake up in the middle of the night prophesying or repeating scripture. I, I, I laughed for 10 entire days, crawled to my car in the morning on my hands and knees because I was laughing so hard. And people were offended by that. But in context, what they didn't know is that a year ago, I was wanting to take my life. And I, I had known tears for so long, but he turned my morning into dancing. And this, this, 
to, the, to outside eyes, this kid's way too goofy. Um, but on inside, you, I, I really felt, I feel like God was just delivering me from years and years of depression. And so I had this 10 days of laughter that washed me of years of depression. And um, God just met with me in, in a powerful way. Um, and so there I was, I probably in that season, what, here's a funny thing about that season. Um, I worked with my best friend, Zach, who was also having encounters with the Lord. And when we went to work, we were trying to stop laughing. You got to stop. We were trying to pull ourselves together. And the beautiful thing was that when I showed up to work, not only had my manager got fired, but my assistant manager got fired. And so I show up at work and I have two new managers who know nothing about me and they just thought I was really giddy. They were just like, we just thought you were the happiest little thing. And so the Lord is sovereign. Okay, I didn't get fired. I worked really hard. Um, managers were gone. And so beautiful Jesus. Um, so, yeah, it was in that season, maybe maybe two months after that season, that a small, um, what, I'm trying to remember what the church is called. It was a like an independent Baptist church, a largely African-American congregation, asked me to come and speak for them. Um, I preached for 10 minutes. I talked very fast. I was very passionate. And then the pastor said, well, do you want to do an altar call? And I said, if you need a fresh touch from the fire of God, come forward. And I don't think that's what he meant by altar call, but that's what I said. Um, and again, it was a Baptist church, largely did not believe in the gifts of the spirit. I laid hands on them and half of them were on the ground rolling and the other half were looking at me like, you are crazy. Um, but one of the most beautiful things about that was my best friend from kindergarten was in the room, got baptized with the Holy Spirit that day. They actually had to drag him in the hallway because he was rolling and crying and experiencing the Lord. And so I'm just so appreciative. You know, your, your best friend gets filled with the Holy Spirit. It was beautiful. Um, but that morning, I'll, I really felt like that's not been a normal encounter. There are times where God shows up like that. But it was almost like God was saying, this is, you know, if you'll, if you'll follow me here, um, I'll use you kind of thing. And so... Um, yeah, that's how I felt called into ministry was through those years of encounter and excitement. Um, and really, my testimony is largely a testimony of of mourning into dancing, depression into joy, brokenness into laughter. And 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 so forgive me over the next coming years if if you feel like I'm, I'm giggling a little too much. But rem, just remind yourself that there was a day when I didn't know how to giggle. Um, so I'm gonna get myself together. But sometimes I get the belly laugh going. All right, let's jump to the sermon. I'll pray, and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be in Philemon chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 8. Jesus, I thank you so much for the joy that's already in the room this morning. From the start of worship, we sensed you. From the start of worship, we felt your spirit flowing up in us, Lord. And so we celebrate you. We worship you. We say there's no one before you or beside you. Not in all the earth is there anyone who can step in so sweetly. There's no one who could um, take brokenness and make life and hope and joy. There's no one who can transform the way that you transform. And that's our message, God, and that's our hope, and that's our life, that you would just continue to be close to us. And we're longing for the day when we read this morning that you make all things right, that you wipe every tear, that you heal all sickness, um, and that we can look on your beauty and the fullness of it. And so we worship you. You truly are our hope of glory. Somebody say amen. Our hope of glory. Amen. Amen. C.S. Lewis, some seven years before he died, wrote his autobiography. If you would call it an autobiography, it wasn't um, a perfect story of his life. He kind of told what he wanted to tell. But it was called Surprised by Joy. Um, His autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And in the autobiography, he talked about his childhood, and and if you've read any of C.S. Lewis, you just know that he was imaginative, right? Like, had this real sense of mystery and awe, and this this just imaginative, creative mind. And he talks about as a child, um, he had these, him and his brother, they they had these entire worlds planned out with um, these characters, and the characters were kind of like the Narnian figures. They were animal characters, and they had all this, this whole world, a map, and he said that he just had this sense of awe and mystery and childlike mysticism. You, you know what kind of mysticism I mean? That anything's possible. Anything could happen. Um, that the absolute opposite of the naturalistic, materialistic worldview that our universities teach today. Like the idea that any, anything could happen. 
he calls, he, he defines his life by these moments which he calls um, waves of joy. Or he, sometimes he calls it stabs of joy um, in, in the book. The book's called Surprised by Joy, if I didn't say that. Um, and he talks about the fact that as he grew, and as obviously he was an educated man, he was Latin, Greek, um, spoke multiple languages, read multiple languages, was incredibly educated, was teaching at Oxford, eventually would transfer and um, start to profess, professor at um, Cambridge University. Um, and it was in those times, you know the story, that he started to have conversations with Tolkien. He was reading um, G.K. Chesterton, which you should read, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton, wonderful writing. Um, and he started to be influenced. And, and basically the, the gist of the story is that as he came back to the Lord, he started to experience waves of joy again. Like supernatural mysticism, excitement, all like his outlook on the world was not so narrow that we're all just um, dirt smashing each other, survival of the fittest. His outlook on the world transitioned into this mysticism that, that God exists and that he loves me and that he's good and it, and it radically changed his life. And so he defined his life. The way that he told the story of his life was joy, joy lost, restoration of joy at the acknowledgement of Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So I want to talk to you this morning about joy in context of everything I just shared about my life and in, in, and in context of who we're called to be as a people of God. So let's read um, Philemon. Uh, we'll start in verse 8. I'm, pr- I'm pretty much just skipping the introduction and conclusion. I'm going to read to you the body of the letter. This is Paul. He says, I, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, remember he's writing to Philemon, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and me. The name Onesimus, it means useful or profitable. So Paul's playing off of his name here. He says, formerly Onesimus was use, useless to you, but now he is useful. I've sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing to you with my own hand. I will repay you. Not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having obedience, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. So here's the scenario, okay? Onesimus, what we know about him. We don't know a ton about him from history. Um... But Onesimus is a slave. He belongs to what we get out of this, a Christian man named Philemon. We can assume from the scripture that Philemon um, was a Christian, that Philemon was well off, that Philemon, possibly some scholars and theologians believe that Philemon had a house church. He definitely had a spare room to his house because Paul's telling Philemon at the end of this letter, prepare your room because I'll come to you. He's a man well off and Onesimus, again, his name means useful or profitable, was his slave. And what we got from this text is that Onesimus um, robbed Philemon, stole his money, and ran. Now, scholars are in a little bit of um, debate as to whether or not Paul was in prison at Ephesus or in prison at Rome. Either one makes sense. Ephesus is a little closer to Colossia, where so Philemon and, and, and Colossians, they were both written together and they were sent together um, Ephesus is a little closer. They were both good places for for Onesimus to hide. Okay, he's he's a fugitive. He's a slave. Um, he's on the run. And so either he he went to Ephesus or Rome, one or the other. There's a later church tradition. Um, Ignatius of Antioch, the bishop of Antioch, um, in his letter to the Ephesians, says that the bishop of Ephesians. He calls him Onesimus, and he says that he's a beloved brother. So some scholars believe that Onesimus would someday be the bishop of Ephesus um, and turned into this great man of God. I'm partial to that idea, not because there's any sort of historical support for it, but it's because I, I like, I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. So he may or may not have been that, but um, I was riding in the car with one of my coworkers this week, and, and 
I was telling her that like I kind of, I kind of like conspiracy theories, and she said, "What kind of conspiracy theories? Like nine eleven conspiracy theories?" And I said, "I said no, like the Loch Ness monster, like 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 Bigfoot." And she said, "Those aren't conspiracy theories." And I said, "You don't get to tell me what I believe and don't believe. It's my conspiracy theories." I grew up in uh, my older brother. Um, he, my older brother has the craziest imagination, the craziest imagination. And when he played t-ball, um, he was the catcher, which you're the catcher in t-ball if you can't play t-ball because, you know, no one pitches. You're just a glorified ball boy. And he was the glorified ball boy, and he was very skittish, right? Like he would pick up the ball and kind of run to the umpire and hand it to him. And at the end of the game, my mom said, son, wh- why were you so skittish? And he said, mom, I don't want to get that close to that vampire. <laughs> So we're into that kind of thing, you know what I'm saying? So I don't know if Onesimus was the bishop of Ephesians or not, but I'm into it. I like to think it. My brother still believes in vampires, I'm pretty sure. He's a little a little off his rocker. And so in a sense, um, this this short letter that's it's you know, it's tucked behind the pastoral epistles. It's rare that we read it or study it. But in a sense, what we get here is we get a slave, Onesimus, who's a fugitive, who all of his life and identity is wrapped up in his in his slavery and in his in the fact that he is a runaway um robber. But he through God's sovereignty, he he meets a man um named Paul, and Paul because of Paul's understanding of the gospel and because of Paul's understanding of human worth, because of Paul's understanding of human value, Paul preaches the gospel to Onesimus. He comes to be saved. And then Paul does this thing in which he intends to reflect the gospel. Paul does this thing for Onesimus in which he wants you to understand that this is what Jesus does for us. And I think in some sense, God preserved this letter for us because he wants you to almost put yourself in Onesimus' shoes and realize what Jesus has done for you. Because Onesimus was a slave, and Paul's going to say, you now, Philemon, receive him as a brother. And Onesimus owed this great debt, but now Paul's going to say, if he owes you anything, you put it on my account. And so Paul steps into this position of intercessor to radically shift this man's life. And now Onesimus no longer lives a life of fear, anxiety, and stress, but his life is this expression and flow of joy because he met a man. Does that make sense? And so this is the identity of the church, and whether you're willing to say that about yourself or not, I am. Um, I spiritually was absolutely a slave. Spiritually, I understood that the wrath of God was pointed at me. I understood that I had sinned against him. Spiritually, I understood that I owed a debt that I could not pay. But I met a man who interceded, who put himself in my place, and now my life is this expression, hop, skip, jump of, I have joy because of him because of what he did, because of who he is, because of his kindness and grace and his great love for me. Do you catch that? Like we catch through this text, this expression of love to Onesimus from Paul. Paul saying that my, my own, I'm sending you my very heart, how much Paul loved this man. And it's a reflection of Christ's great adoration for us, his church. And so Onesimus, I'm going to walk through this for you just for a second. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up. I'll get you there quick. Anissimus, number one, was a slave. He had the ability to dream, but he lacked the freedom to pursue those dreams. He had the ability to lay awake at night and have great ambition for his children. You know, like the ability to say, I wish that my kids had an education, and I wish my kids could um, grow up to be lawyers or, or whatever, but, but his sweat didn't belong to to him, his sweat belonged to another man. So all of his labor and all of his his ambition, it, it couldn't fulfill these dreams. His dreams were there, but he didn't have the freedom to pursue them. His identity and his personhood was completely wrapped up in the fact that he belonged to another man. And I think spiritually we can all relate. Because every one of us in this room, I believe according to Romans chapter 1, we have this ideal, right? Like, even even atheists would agree that murder is wrong rape is wrong but but even we will go even further like to lie about someone is wrong and to um 
gossip is wrong and bitterness is wrong. And every one of you have this great ideal that we dream of, of this is what life should be like. And it's really a reflection of the Garden of Eden. So every one of us have this ideal that I should live this way, but you don't have the ability outside of Jesus to do so. So we all had this, this, this standard that God implanted into us, but we don't have the power to live that standard. And so Paul says that we're a slave to the flesh. In Romans chapter 7, he'll say this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? No one dreams as a child to be chewed up and spit up by sin. You can go into the prisons today and not one of those those men or women would tell you that this is what they hoped for, right? But the law of sin eats us up and chews us up and spits us out. And so we dream and we hope for better, but we're bound to this law of flesh that I'm always fulfilling what I, I'm always chasing the air, beating the wind, longing for something that I, that I can't get my hands on. And it's slavery. But Paul in Romans seven twenty five says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law and the flesh could not do. But he met a man. And so here Onesimus is surprised by joy because now he no longer belongs to Philemon. But Paul gives him the right to look that man in the eye. And now he's no longer another's slave or a worker or but but he has the ability now to dream for his kids and to work for his own well-being and he has the ability to live for his family and for his and pursue his calling and and trust and dream for what God's called him to do because Paul gave him that right do you understand that reflection of what God's done for you because we have this ideal and and we couldn't live it before but but God has given us the ability he he says in Romans that by the spirit we put to death the flesh Galatians chapter 5 that you walk in the spirit and not in the flesh because the flesh to walk in the flesh is to resist the spirit and to walk in the spirit is to resist the flesh you should produce love joy patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness and self-control against such things there is no law and all those in Christ Jesus have put to death the flesh all those in Jesus now have the ability, the, the old theologians of the past called it mortification. We now have the ability by the Holy Spirit that when that lust or bitterness or moment to gossip pokes its head up in my face, I get to say, I don't belong to you because I met a man. Do you understand that? I met a man who gave me the power to get free from that. Bless Jesus, joy. Onesimus was a fugitive. He spent a life running from his guilt. I'm, I'm assuming um, that he was anxious and fearful, right? To, to run from the law is, it, I would assume that he lived with a high anxiety, ducking out. His best hope at life is to never be recognized. He's putting off the inevitable. There's, there very well may be a day of judgment coming for him that he's only buying time for uh, you know, hoping to extend his, his, Last hoorah before he meets his judgment. Onesimus is a fugitive. He's on the run. Romans 2 chapter 5, Paul says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He'll render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so for every one of us, we were all fugitives at some point. For every one of us, we had stored up wrath for that last day. Every one of us had repetitively sinned against God, and we had stored up a pile of God's wrath towards us. But when we met Jesus, there was a shift, and he stood in our place, and he absorbed the wrath of God for us. And now we hop, skip, and jump in joy because we do not have to endure the punishment that we rightfully deserve. We've all known Adam's fear of hiding from the omnipresence of God. The fullest expression of fear and anxiety is, is found. And you remember um, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hand of, of an angry God. It's knowing that death is inevitable, that every one of us are going to eat the dirt, and that we've all wronged him. But there was a man who stood in our place. 
the New Bible Dictionary says that um, Philemon would have had a social pressure to punish Onesimus harshly. So according to law, Philemon could have beat Onesimus severely, but there was a social pressure and legally um, Philemon could have murdered um, Onesimus. So there's this social pressure to keep the slaves in fear. And so if your slave ran away and stole all your money and you find him, you better kill him so that we can keep this culture of fear so that no one else's slaves run away. Rightfully and legally, Philemon should have at least beat Onesimus severely. But there was a man who stood in the gap. But but, but Philemon actually belonged to someone else. His Onesimus' master belonged to another master. His name was Paul. And Paul said to Philemon, you owe me your life. You receive this man as a brother. Joy. Again, immense joy. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He made him sin to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 5, 8, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is no longer pointed at me, but it's absorbed in Christ because there was an intermediary who made a way for me. And that should produce in you incredible joy. Unshakable joy, unspeakable joy. Lewis called um, the goodness of God a terrifying thing as he reasoned philosophically to understand God. He said that if he conceded with the Christian that God is omnibenevolent, that God is perfectly good, that's not a good thing for him because if God is perfectly good, then he must be perfectly just. And if he is perfectly just, then I've got to be an offender of him. If God is perfectly just, then he must be frustrated with me, is what Lewis reasoned to. The, the beauty of the gospel is that God's love and his mercy made a way in this intermediary, in that precious blood that was shed for you on Calvary, which gave you the right to step into communion with this beautiful, majestic, holy God. Onesimus was a runaway He spent all of his energy trying to get free from his judgment to come, but his master was submitted to another. Paul intervenes, reflecting Christ, and he delivers, he delivers Onesimus from that anxiety and fear. One of the, Romans chapter 8, one of the greatest messages of the gospel in Romans chapter 8 is that by his spirit we now call him Abba Father. That we once were bound, we once were slaves to fear, but by the, by the Holy Ghost imparted to us, we're adopted, grafted into his family, and rather than receiving the judgment that I rightfully deserve, he actually brings me in and loves me and shepherds me and gives me an inheritance that I already threw away and squandered, but now he's given me life. He's actually given me the ability to be a new creation in Christ Jesus and set me free from those shackles. So Philemon uh, 1.15, for this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. His identity shifts. He's no longer a slave, but now he's a person of dignity. He has the ability to look people in the eye. And some of us, and me certainly, grew up insecure, fearful, um, with high anxiety, but the Spirit of God has given me a boldness. It's given me the ability to look my fear in the eye and say, I belong to someone who you'll bow to. Hallelujah. In verse 17, Paul tells Philemon that you receive this man as if he was me. And God says that he, he sees us in Christ Jesus. He loves us as if he, the same love that he loves Jesus with. Paul says to Philemon, don't you dare treat this man as less than. You treat him as if I was there in the flesh. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that you should be treated less than, that you should have deserved wrath, that you should have spent eternity under God's punishment. But God, through Christ, receives you as if you were Jesus himself, as a son and daughter of the Most High, that you get to live in joy, not because of what you did, but because of what he did, because there was blood that bought you and washed you. New identity, new boldness, and hallelujah, new joy. The man that he spent years fearing, right? Like years, he heard his harsh voice. The man that was, in some sense, always his master, his tormentor. He now looks that man in the face with dignity. My last point. Onesimus owed a debt he couldn't pay. 
He not only ran from his master, but he robbed him. He's financially wronged Philemon. I'd imagine that that sitting with Paul, when Paul starts to talk to Onesimus, I'm going to send you back. I'm going to send you with a letter. I can imagine Philemon saying, but uh, or Onesimus saying, I don't have the money to pay that man back. I've, I've robbed him. I've stolen. I don't have the financial means. I'll spend all my life trying to pay this back. I can't, I cannot. And financial pressure, there's a spiritual um, parallel that God often uses um, talking about a debt that we couldn't pay. Financial pressure produces an anxiety and it produces an extreme stress. And you'll live all of your life scrambling and trying to trying to make up. And, and there's a spiritual parallel in that every one of you, every one of us, we're in debt to God, and we think if we could just just hoard all of our works, and we start to scramble and to and to into the into the little things, do everything we can to possibly appease this to try to pay this man back. And the truth is, we can't. We'll ne- we'll never be able to. But can you imagine Paul telling telling Onesimus, um, "I understand that you owe him financially. I'm going to take care of that. He can add that to my tab. I, I've I've got the means." Don't, don't worry about that pressure. And so all that stress, right? And, and this is the gospel of works to you. It's thinking that if I could just work hard enough, maybe God would love me and accept me. And God says, no, like I've taken care of that. I love you because of the blood that was shed. You're free to live in joy. So he says to Philemon in verse 118, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, you charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Say nothing, and then he says this, to say nothing of the fact that you owe me. I used to share this analogy all the time, and I'll give it to you. Um, As I learned to grow in the faith, and um, I... I did this thing that, that a lot of Pentecostal young people do for sure. We, we get in the pursuit of anointing and we, we get, we start to think that anointing comes with works. And the more I, I gotta work harder and then I can earn anointing rather than understanding that anointing most of the time just comes from just soaking in his presence and knowing him, like letting it rub off. But I, but I thought that if I worked harder, I could earn it. And so for instance, if my roommate prayed for an hour and I prayed for two hours, I could preach better than him because I worked harder. And I, and I really really, really in a subtle, nuanced way, slipped into a gospel of works. And I felt God one morning give me this analogy. Um, we lived next to, or our church was, is next to a Burger King. How many of you love Burger King? Nobody loves Burger King. So we, there was a Burger King by, and some people worked there, and um, I felt like God gave me this analogy. I felt like God said, you are a Burger King worker. You flip burgers all of your life. You have no education. There's no no inheritance. You're just a Burger King worker flipping burgers. And one day, um, every one of you imagine that. You're, you work at Burger King. You flip the burgers. That's what you do. Your, grease, your pants got grease stains. You smell bad. That's what you do. Um, and one day, you come into work, and some lawyer walks in in a nice suit and hands you a letter of inheritance. And you had some great re- uh, uncle three times removed who you never met, who was a billionaire, who said um, you were his only relative, and he left you all of his money. Now, what do you do in that money m- moment is you get the junk out of your Burger King outfit, and you take yourself down to the mall to get some new shoes, right? Um, you're excited. You are filled with ecstatic joy. You are, and, and I felt like God said that this is who you are, Caleb. It's 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 not that you've earned this inheritance. It's that you just received it. You were just blessed with it. And what God said is, but what you're doing, Caleb, is that you're putting on a suit and tie and you're going to all these like business meetings and pretending that you know what you're talking about, but you didn't earn that money. It was a gift. And so, but what God told me too is that if I continued to live that way, what I was actually doing was robbing myself of joy. So to act like I earned my salvation was actually robbing me of the fact that I did it, that it was just given to me. And so rather than doing everything I could to to work up and earn something from God, God wants us to just live from a place of joy and thankfulness and simple obedience. What are you asking me to do today, God? I want to do it because you're so good to me, not because I'm trying to work up my salvation. Let me tell you what's offensive to God. What's offensive to God is for you to ever think that you could work hard enough to stand head to head with Jesus. No one works hard enough to look that man in the eye. 
Jesus is the most beautiful, holy, majestic man that ever walked this earth. There's not one of us who work hard enough to look him in the eye. We all fall wonderfully, wonderfully short of the glory of God. There's not one of us. And so to think that you can work your way into heaven, that somehow I can work hard enough that God's going to owe me salvation is a spit in the face of the character of God. And so I just look at Jesus and I say, you're much, much more than I could ever reach. Thank you for what you've given me. I want all of my life to be joy flown from what you've done for me. My entire life, to some extent, is learning to transition from an orphan to a son. To transition from poverty to inheritance. To transition from my selfishness and my moments of fear to remember no I met a man, and that man changed everything about my life. And so I'm not going to live in fear, but I'm going to live in the joy that was bought for me because he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And there's joy that he received when I came to his kingdom, and there's joy that he imparted to me, and I am going to be faithful to that joy. I'm going to steward it. I'm going to live in it, and I will not allow any man, woman, demonic entity to rob me of what God bought for me. And so I wanted to share this with you this morning because um, this is so much of my identity. It's probably the most important thing to me is that I learn and that you learn, that my children learn to be people of joy. I want my kids to know thoroughly there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. You're perfectly loved in the blood of Jesus. Just trust him. I do not want my kids to live in fear and anxiety. And so as a church, I'm asking you to, with Lewis, Get to this place where we just live in joy. And I don't mean that like somebody's sick and needs prayer and we just pretend like it's not happening. I don't mean that we're this false, like we're just going to keep, just be happy, be happy, be happy. Um, I, I don't mean that. I've, I've, I've deemed it like a, a reflect, a reflective joy, a joy that says, okay, we have hard scenarios and hardships are bound to come, right? Like we all agree on that. Persecution may come. We, there's work ahead. If we're going to, if we're going to labor for the gospel, there's work ahead. Um, but, but, but this joy is looking at the work, looking at the stress and the fear that's trying to intimidate me and trying to cause me to submit to it. And it's saying, okay, there was a night when I laid in bed with a shotgun in my mouth and I said, I'm going to take my life because I cannot do it. There was a day where my wife said to me, I'm scared that we're never going to be able to have kids. There were moments of intense fear. But I met a man who, who radically delivered me from all of that. And so I'm living in reflective joy, a joy that remembers where I came from. And that's why it's important that we keep our testimony. Not that you live from your testimony. Not that you say, I'm, I was an alcoholic. I'm always going to be an alcoholic. I'm never going to be in better than this. But that you live in a place that I was an alcoholic, but Jesus got hold of me and he delivered me. And I can live in joy and free from that thing now because of what he did for me. So... um Augustine in chapter two of his confessions, um, he's telling the story of, you know, um, St. Augustine's confessions is kind of his autobiography too, although, um, he tells it in his own way. Um, but in chapter two of confessions, he talks about, um, him and some friends robbed a pear tree and he's just basically talking about his sinfulness. But he says to God at one point, he says, God, I'm not, he, you know, it's, it's written in a prayerful way. Confessions is he's communicating with God the whole time. He says, God, I'm not reflecting on this sin to glorify it. I'm not reflecting on this sin to try to dwell in it or live there or experience the high that I once had from stealing. But he said, I'm, I'm reflecting on this sin to remember what you did for me and what you brought me out of. And I'm reflecting on this sin so that I can push forward in your joy. You guys get what I'm saying? So Lewis, in his Surprise by Joy, he's, I, I kind of robbed this title. It's not exactly what he's talking about. Um, but in his Surprise by Joy, he's primarily talking about an experiential joy. A joy that, um, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you haven't done anything, you just wake up and for some reason you sense God's presence. Or have you ever went to pray and you pray? If you're like me, you do a morning devotional every day and you sit down. And some days it's like, okay, I'm getting through it. I'm, I'm trying to study. And learn. But some days you sit down and it's just like, oh my word, the Holy Spirit just hit me. And, and you get tears and there are just these moments of awe and these moments of experiential joy. And that's what Lewis meant in his surprise by joy. But even in our experiential joy, I want you to hear me say this, because um, so many times in charismatic circles, like I just told you that I had moments of 
what I would call like a supernatural laughter. But my life is not trying to pursue the manifestation because even the manifestation was bought with the blood of Jesus. Even the, the manifestation, it's just an outworking of who, of who God is. So even in moments, if God steps in and people are healed and people are touched with power, it's still a celebration of the cross of Jesus because the only reason we could ever experience his good, the only reason he steps into this room every time we begin to worship is because there was atonement made for us. Because without Jesus, we would be a room full of fugitives, of slaves, and we'd be a room full of people in debt. But with Jesus, we are a room full of emancipated, free, bold, spirit-filled people who are bought with a price, who live in joy because of what Jesus did. And so we're not just, we're not just seeking the hand of God, we're reflective, remembering what He did, and everything that comes, all the experiential joy, it's all still about the fact that He bought us with a price. And so as a church, as a people, um, forgive me if I remind you of this often. Forgive me if we come back to this from time to time. And forgive me if as we begin to try to reach this community and pray for our city and, and hope that God would, would step in and like allow us to experience a real wave of his glory. Forgive me if from time to time we just pause and remember the cross. Remember the blood that was shed for us. If, if I call you to repentance again and we just say, Lord, forgive us if we've walked away from this message. Let the gospel be the center of everything that we do. Last thing I'm going to say. There has been a subtle... Um, I was reading a, a book called Pigeon Religion by R.T. Kendall. And the, the foreword was written by, um, I think, Lee Grady. Is that the old... Um, editor of the Charisma magazine. Um, the Ford was written by Lee Grady. So these are his words, not mine, because they could become off offensive. But he said that when the charismatic renewal began, when the Holy Spirit started to pour himself out in the churches, it was only a matter of time before the message began to shift a little. And he said in the early days, it was preaching on the blood of Jesus, repentance, the wonder and the beauty of the Holy Spirit, that he loves us and he wants to commune with us. But it, but it kind of shifted into give me your money and we'll, and then you'll be blessed. Or it started, it started turning into more of a, forgive me, because again, these are his words, not mine, but he called it like a sideshow, like a come and see thing. And so I do think that there's been a bit of a subtle um, dichotomy, a false dichotomy that's, that's come, that if you are a spirit-filled Pentecostal church, you're a people who care about the gifts and signs and manifestations. You're not a people who care about the blood of Jesus and the cross, that you have to choose whether or not you're going to be a Holy Spirit church or whether or not you're going to be a Jesus church. And I'm just telling you that I'm not a Holy Spirit Christian or a Jesus Christian. I am a Christian that walks in the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus loves me so perfectly and beautifully and wonderfully. And I refuse to be a church, and I pray you'll stand with me on this, that says we're Holy Spirit filled, but we, were, we we don't talk about the blood of Jesus much. I say, let's just do both. Let's just be, but we love Jesus with all of our being and we love the Holy Ghost with all of our being. And there's this crazy thing about the Trinity. They actually like, the Trinity works to glorify one another. And so Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll glorify myself. He'll glorify Jesus. And Philippians chapter two, it says that because Jesus submitted to God in obedience, even to death, God glorified him, gave him the name that was above every name. And at one day, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father and so the father says to jesus you you be glorified you you have the name above every name so the the trinity does not function in this separated divorced fashion the trinity functions in this perfect unity and love for one another and so as a church we want to get caught up in that cycle of love and communion we want to love father god we want to love the holy spirit and we want to just revel in the blood of jesus and not allow anyone to force us into a false dichotomy amen are you okay with that Amen, amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.
Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.